Hi, this is Veronica. It's the second episode of Legal Chit Chat, and my today's guest is Varumu, who is Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient, a founder of Global Volunteering COVID-19 app, UK's Youth Parliament member. He also received such awards as Entrepreneur of the Year, World Financial Expert Awards from Boris Johnson and United Nations, and he is also a keynote speaker in five different countries. So, Rory, thank you so much for coming. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about Forbes 30 under 30. As I understand, it's really important to explain uh, for the listeners that in order to be in Forbes 30 under 30, it's super important to make a difference, to make a great contribution to the society. I mean, it's not only about your uh, financial welfare. It's all about your motivation to change uh, the life for the better. So the question is, what do you think the most important qualities in order to be in Forbes 30 under 30 and what you should do special in order to be related to this somehow? It's a really good question. I think the first thing I would say is that no one should uh, objectively try to get into Forbes 30 under 30 as, as their goal. I think their goal should be to do something impactful and the byproduct is to be uh, selected into Forbes 30 under 30 in recognition of the impact that you have. But what I would say in terms of probably with the number one quality or the number one thing that they're looking for in people who make the list are people who are disrupting something in some way. So people who are going against the status quo or doing things differently than others, because the reality is there are a lot of people around the world who are trying to make an impact, trying to do something um, but what Forbes are really interested in is identifying what they describe as the trailblazers, the young people who are doing things differently. So I think what disruption means can be very different depending on different categories. For me, for example, it was uh, doing something very different in the volunteering space. Volunteering has traditionally been uh, not really used like using technology, um, but we were able to use an app which connected volunteers and people needed help. And by using technology, we were able to massively impact uh, people and make it easier for them to get the, the help they needed during the pandemic. So let's go back to the coronavirus times. And that was really hard for relatively everybody. And at this particular moment, you decided to create the an app, an organization that later has become the greatest, largest worldwide volunteer in COVID-19 organization. Could you please tell us about how this organization and an app works, its main aims and its main prospects? Sure. So the the first thing to say is that I never intended to create a global volunteer organization. Uh, when the pandemic started, I just wanted to make a difference and help people who needed support. Um, and so actually, we didn't start with an app. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, as I say, I just wanted to do something. So I basically designed a poster that people could print off, um, write their name and their phone number on and deliver it to all their houses on the street. And I just encouraged my friends to do this, to support people. And, you know, just basically if anyone needed help, they could call that phone number and ask, you know, for full assistance, whether it's, you know, buying groceries or taking a dog for a walk or just, you know, chatting over the phone to stop them being lonely, all sorts of basic tasks. But as I started that, I realized that actually it was going to be really hard to scale something um, that was just a poster that people were printing out. And as I launched it, I realized, and people were telling me they really needed a similar infrastructure in their own, areas or their own countries so that's when i thought well okay we're going to need to do something a bit more uh robust to, in order to actually be able to scale it so that's why i then created an app um i worked with a tech company who built the app for us and we worked with them to design it um and so then we launched that and essentially the way it worked was by geolocation so if you downloaded the app as a volunteer you could find people in your area who needed help or 
vice versa. If you were in need of help, you could find volunteers in your area. Um, so it really helped uh, anyone get access to to support because if you didn't have friends or family who could support you, then you're going to be in a really difficult position. Um, and the charities and uh, you know organizations that have been around before, they didn't really know exactly who needed help because previously if they were just helping elderly people, for example, it wasn't just elderly people who were affected by the pandemic. So by using our app, it meant that people could really uh, get support when perhaps they weren't otherwise being able to. So that was the main the main purpose. And as I say, didn't intend to create this uh, global organization. It just kind of happened over time. Um, but I think we started it in in the town where I, where I grew up. And, and then uh, within three months, we were in, I think, 20 countries. And by six months, we were in 40 countries around the world. So it was very quick growth, um, which I wasn't expecting, but I certainly learned a lot from it. And uh, the primary motivation was to help as many people as possible. So when I realized people needed help and we needed to scale it, then that was what motivated me to to keep growing the organization so that we could really make a difference. So the thing is that uh, the people may be provided with mental help mm-hmm. and with some physical professional help as well. Exactly. So it was, we helped with a range of basic tasks, anything from shopping and delivering groceries through to uh, talking over the phone if someone was living alone and wanted support, uh, you know, taking people's uh, dogs for a walk, really, you know, all sorts of things that might seem very small, but actually, if you were stuck at home, if you had COVID or if you were isolating, if you were vulnerable, those things would not have been easy to do. Um, so it was really just about providing that basic uh, support for daily tasks, which people might have been struggling with. It's so crucial because honestly, I was ill with coronavirus, um, it was about maybe two years ago. And I think that, you know, this post-COVID time, uh, lots of people, they struggle with depressions, with anxiety. And yeah, it's super, super important to surround yourself with people who could help you to overcome these problems. Recently, you visited the USA, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, for work purposes. So if it's not a secret, could you describe what was the main purpose of your trip and what did you do there? Was it somehow related to your recently created app? Uh, so actually, the reason I went to uh, work on a business, so my co-founder actually is based in, in Silicon Valley in, in California. So I went there to work with him on the project. Um, what we're doing is still a very early stage, but it's essentially uh, quite different to what I was doing with the volunteer organization. But we're essentially using artificial intelligence to improve the productivity of uh, products and engineering teams in, in large companies. So it's yeah a, a big change, but it's still, there's actually, I found there's a lot of transferability from the skills I learned building a, a nonprofit, you know, the skills you learn in terms of building partnerships, communicating what you're trying to do, uh, bringing people on board. Even though it's a nonprofit setting, there's actually a lot of overlap between the skills you can learn and, and develop in that and then in also in building for-profit companies. The other thing is that when I started uh, the volunteer organization, I was only 18. Um, and so obviously it would be naive to say that I knew everything and what I was doing. So actually the truth is I learned a lot um, throughout that process. And so there's a lot of insights I've been able to glean and, and learn. And it will, you know, I've developed a lot of skills which have then been able to be used in, in different parts of my work, including the business I'm now starting. So um, it's been an interesting journey and perhaps not the, the conventional one. Most people, when they leave uh, university, they go uh, into you know, graduate roles. And that was something I was planning to do. I had offers from, from to work in commercial law or to work in consulting. And I was thinking about it, but I decided ultimately that I knew I wouldn't find that very fulfilling because I've done a lot of entrepreneurial stuff whilst I was at university. 
Um, and I knew that if I went to the bottom of a big organization and had to kind of just be, you know, not really having much influence or much agency, I knew I found that quite frustrating. So I decided to take a risk and do something entrepreneurial. Of course, most uh, startups fail. The risks are very high, but I decided it was what I wanted to do. And if there's any time to take a risk, it's whilst and gun before you have kids, before you have a mortgage on a house, you know, so we'll see how it pans out. You know, in Russia, we have this quote, someone who doesn't take risk, he doesn't drink champagne in the end. So, <laughs> you know, I think that especially the younger generation, the men are very, very interested and are literally obsessed with being in Silicon Valley. So how was the, you know, the experience, the vibe, the people that you met in this place? How was it? Uh, so I think overall, um, Silicon Valley in itself is of course, is one of the centers of, the, of entrepreneurship globally. So, of course, people wanting to start a company. It's undeniable that Silicon Valley has more opportunities and you know, access to network, access to capital, raising investment is easier there. But it doesn't mean that you need to be in Silicon Valley if you want to be a successful entrepreneur. That's not the case. Silicon Valley is a great place to be, but it's not the not absolutely crucial. So, refer to what you were talking about about how a lot of people especially uh, men want to go to Silicon Valley and see, see that as like the, the ultimate goal. I think also there's a big problem within the tech industry more broadly, uh, you know, it being a male-dominated industry. This is changing and it's moving in the right direction, but there's still a lot of work to be done uh, in terms of getting uh, young women into STEM and into technology. Um, and that ultimately is going to take a long time to change because it requires working at the grassroots and making sure because also it's a perception right it's not just there's barriers it's also that there's not enough young women studying science subjects subjects like science and maths and that's sometimes just because they don't think there are opportunities for them and that might be true but it also requires a perception change so i think there's so much work to be done to make uh silicon valley and the tech industry in the world more broadly you know more inclusive um so there's a lot to be done but uh i think the things are move, starting to move in the right direction i've seen a documentary uh three years ago it was about Silicon Valley, and um, it was told that it was said that there are only ten percent of women. But now I think that the things are changing. All feminists are very <laughs> glad to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, like the if you think about the, the global population, I think it's probably something like fifty-two, forty-eight percent women. So it's of course the industry itself is massively underrepresented. Of course, that's replicated across a lot of different industries. But yeah, there's no reason why it shouldn't be much more diverse and equal. Um, but I think it's just this: it's going to take a long time to see those changes. But uh, the sooner we see them, the better. You've not that long were in Dubai, and you were invited as a moderator to the Future Innovation Summit. So, how was it? Could you describe this experience? I think it's really interesting. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the Future Innovation Summit is one of the world's largest uh, innovation-focused conferences. So, it was talking about, you know, a lot of future technologies, uh, for example, in, in Web3, so blockchain, the metaverse, um, and also things like sustainability, which are, of course, crucial as we think about the future of technology. Um, so, it was a really interesting conference, and I was lucky enough to be invited there by the, the royal family of the UAE um, to speak uh, about uh, sustainability. Um, which is obviously something that I'm very passionate about, particularly as a young person. I think uh, it seems that young people are uh, you know, disproportionately interested in this because, of course, the planet, the decisions being made today are going to affect the planet that we grow up in and become leaders in. So we have a big stake in, in what the world looks like. Um, so, yeah, it was a really interesting conference. So, um, But I think one of the interesting things about Dubai is that there's a really strong uh, entrepreneurial culture, quite similar, in a sense, to Silicon Valley. 
uh, and people are really motivated and really keen to do something and, and make an impact. And and that's something that in terms of my own values, I really, um, really, you know, thrived in. So it was a good experience. I met a lot of really interesting people and talked about some really interesting uh, topics that are going to be crucial um, as we move forward. So it was a good experience so far. So you think that it does make sense for foreign entrepreneurs to move to Dubai to not Silicon Valley because it's yeah. so expensive. I mean, to be honest, the, Dubai is incredibly expensive as well. Um, but what is more expensive, Silicon Valley or Dubai? I think pure cost of living terms, Silicon Valley is more expensive, but Dubai is it is incredibly expensive as well. I mean, what in terms of in terms of moving, I mean, I, I know every. I would encourage every person to think about their own circumstances. I, I wouldn't say everyone should move to Dubai, for example. Um, but of course, there are lots of opportunities there uh, in, a, in a business sense. And so people should at least, if they're interested, uh, at least consider visiting somewhere like the Middle East. There's a lot of really interesting work being done in the Gulf region, whether you look at Saudi Arabia, you look at Qatar, uh, the UAE specifically, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Of course, there's a lot of controversy and that it's important we acknowledge that around some of the record on human rights and similar topics. But at the same time, entrepreneurially speaking, there's a lot of capital, there's a lot of opportunities. And so I think it's it's crucial that people engage with that as a region and I really interrogate the opportunities there because uh, Middle East is one of the growth engines of, of the 21st economy, the 21st century economy. So that, that also means there's plenty of opportunities there. As I noticed, you also do more to develop education system. Why this is your aim and what problems current education system has? I think one of the problems that I'm particularly uh, passionate about is kind of the the need for skills education. So obviously what are, what people learn traditionally in school is quite theoretical. You know, you read from a textbook, but to be honest, a lot of the soft skills that people really need in the workplace aren't really taught at school. So I'm thinking about things like um, public speaking, communication, teamwork, critical thinking, all this stuff that you're supposed to suddenly know when you go into a job, but you didn't really get taught at school. You got taught how to do algebra and you got taught more in the history of, you know, some war wars, which is important. But at the same time, the soft skills that you need in the workplace are really crucial. And that's not always taught so much at school. That's one problem. Another problem is that... Um, especially the higher education system. I, I'm from the UK and particularly in, in the UK, I think this is a big problem is that university doesn't really set you up for the the job market that you, mm-hmm. that in the 21st century. What, again, what you learn at a university is quite theoretical. It's very concept-based and actually the practical skills, for example, let's let's just take, um, I don't know what's a good example, maybe law actually. Uh, what you learn is very theoretical and actually once you've, you know, you've done your law degree, if you want to then work in commercial law, they say, oh, hang on, you did this law degree, fine, but what you learned was kind of quite theoretical and it's not actually what you need to be a lawyer. So we're going to send you on this, this practical course to study what you need to learn or we're going to help train you to become a lawyer. So I think there's a big problem in terms of people are spending a lot of time and a lot of money in the UK as well, studying for degrees that don't necessarily give them the skills they need or make them more employable. So that's a big problem. And finally, touching on both of those things is the rise of artificial intelligence because We've seen in the last six months or so with the advent of ChatGPT and similar generative AI technologies that actually what we traditionally were doing at school or what we were doing at work can very easily be automated or done by artificial intelligence much more accurately and much more quickly. So that means that what people are going to do in the future at work or what they're going to learn at school for that workplace is going to be very different. So the education system is going to have to be completely rethought and redeveloped um, for this post-AI or this era with AI. So... There's a multitude of problems uh, in education and so much that needs to be think, thought about and addressed. Um, 
to touch on your question of in India, I, yes, I went to India um, late last year for a couple of uh, three or four weeks, I think, visited a few different cities in, in the country um, and was meeting with all sorts of different people in, in the skills education ecosystem. As I mentioned, I think it's really important that people focus on skills, uh, not just the theoretical education. An interesting thing about India is that oh, they have what the world's largest young population. So they have 500 million people, but there's 500 million just under 18 in India. So it's a huge uh, young population. And those people are going to be entering the job market. You know, you can have 5, 10 million people every year entering the job market or even more. And what that means is there's going to be massive uh, problems when it comes to people getting employed, having the right level of skills. And so that's why I think it's really crucial in countries like India that we see more focus on, on skills education rather than just traditional you know, uh, education in, in school. Um, and so I was meeting with people from government, people from nonprofits, all sorts of different people to kind of think about and talk about this important topic. And uh, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. It was the first time I'd been to the country um, and it was a really important thing to talk about too. So it was good experience. I do agree with you. I think that it's really important, um, even in schools, to a bit elaborate the schedule and to incorporate some classes, some IT classes, like, yeah, also to develop soft skills. You know, how to respect people. I think it's really important. How to set maybe boundaries, how not to violate each other's boundaries. I think that it does mean a lot when you are becoming a professional in your field. Because I've seen so many people who are great professionals, but um, they don't have these breaks of skills. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you received the point of flight owner from Boris Johnson for creating the world's largest COVID-19 organization. And Boris Johnson described you as an inspiration and a testament to the power of health. I saw that on Instagram that you had a meeting with Boris Johnson. It's really interesting what he is like in real life and what impression you had, what we're talking about. I actually met him um, in the summer after he had announced that he was going to resign, but he was still prime minister. So it was in the period where he didn't have too much to do, we'll say. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was able to make time to, to meet uh, with people like me and, and others who had done really important work in, in pandemic. Um, and so I think well, one of the things that I was particularly um, surprised about or really uh, honoured, I guess, was that when I met him, he definitely knew about who I was and the work that I'd done. Um, and when you think about how many people the prime minister has to meet, um, it's always nice to know that he's aware of who you are and, and what impact he made in the UK. So that was that was really nice. And I mean, in terms of how it was in person, he's, you know, Brooke. He's renowned for being very charismatic and having a really strong <laughs> personality. Yeah, so I think he was, of course, very friendly and very outgoing. And I was actually lucky enough to talk to him for around, well, I spent almost an hour uh, talking to him and some of his other colleagues. Of course, I think what is important for me to emphasize is that I was recognized uh, by and had the chance to meet the prime minister. It's not necessarily about the person who's in the office uh, and what the opinion is of that person, but the institution of prime minister um, it's, it's really nice to be recognized by by the Prime Minister and have the opportunity to meet that person, uh, irrespective of who the office holder is at the time. Because, of course, um, people don't always agree with actions or, or policies of, of people, but it's always about the institution. So, uh, yeah, I would feel very honored to, to get the award from the Prime Minister and uh, to have the opportunity to meet him and actually talk a bit more about some of the, the issues and some of the things that we can still do better in volunteering. The problem is, is that the UK civil society is so... Uh, so diverse and so vibrant that we have so many charities, so many organizations, which is great. 
but also one of the challenges is that with all these organizations, they quite often compete against each other um, and put up barriers. So let's say you volunteer at one organization, sometimes they prohibit you from volunteering for another one, or every time you work for one, you have to get approved and verified by the government to check that your, you know, your credentials are fine and you're safe to volunteer. But if you have to vo- do that every single time you work for different organizations, it can be very time-consuming and can put people off from actually wanting to volunteer. So what we're trying to do is uh, look at how we can have one system where everyone can get verified once by the government on a periodic basis and then be able to volunteer for anyone who they want. Because then that means the more people that volunteer, obviously we're going to have a bigger impact. And so we want to make it as easy as possible for anyone that wants to volunteer to do that. So that's something that we're looking at right now um, and we'll hopefully have some updates on in the near future. So the thing is to reduce the number of charities, but to expand the number of people that are working. Not necessarily reduce the number of charities, but certainly expand the number of volunteers. Because right now it's it's really hard um, for people to to be vetted and to get approved as volunteers for different um, organizations. And every time they join a new one, they have to go through this this process. So we want to make it possible for someone to be verified, and then they can work and volunteer for any charity at the same time. So it's just about. Uh, not necessarily reducing charities, but just increasing how easy it is for people to volunteer. Because to, to be honest, it's, of course, people are choosing to volunteer because they uh, are giving up spare time. They want to do something to help others. But if you have to, um, if if you find out you want to, let's say you want to volunteer for a charity and then you're waiting three months to get approved. In that time, you might have decided, you know, you might have become busy, you might have lost interest. And so we want to quit. Exactly. So we want rather than people sitting at home when they want to help before they're having to wait for this process. Of course, it's important we verify people, but they shouldn't have to do it every single time. So we're just trying to streamline the process and, and make it uh, much more easy for people to volunteer because that's how we're going to help people who are in need. When we're discussing your path and your accomplishments, um, you know, from the first sight, it might seem that it's super easy, but I think that we all know that uh, what a real life is, and I'm sure you as well. While you're achieving something, you have various challenges. Life is all about ups and downs. So what challenges do you personally have and how you overcome them and, you know, find energy to keep up going? Yeah, I think it's really a really good point that you make to acknowledge that the journey is not linear. There's a lot of obstacles, a lot of challenges. Uh, I think it's sometimes easy for people to to listen to podcasts or see on social media like LinkedIn and see everyone's achievements and think, oh, wow, how, why am I finding it hard when these people are doing this and this looks so easy? But of course, the truth is you only see, is this is the problem with social media or other things, you only see the highlights, right? You don't see all the challenges. Uh, so yeah, it's very good to acknowledge that there have been many challenges. I think one of the big challenges for me um, was, at least at the start, was realizing doing all this different stuff, how can I balance my time? Mm-hmm. Um, because... When I started, I was, for example, with the COVID organization, I was studying for a degree at London School of Economics, which is not super easy. Um, I was running my volunteer organization. I was doing quite a few other things. I was trying to have a social life. You know, all these things are competing. And I wanted to do them all, but also it was quite hard to kind of find the time to manage and, and run all those different things at once. So I think for me, I had to definitely learn how to be effective at prioritizing my time um, and that is not something that is necessarily that you can learn immediately. Um, but I found strategies that work for me. Um, other challenges I faced were before in each thing I've done, uh, it's kind of quite difficult to overcome uh, different obstacles and things that come up along the way. Like for example, my COVID organization, 
the truth is that there were so many different roadblocks uh, and challenging things where we had to really think about how we could, uh, you know, overcome those things. And so I think really have to be very resilient, especially when you're starting something yourself, whether it's a business, whether it's a nonprofit, it's very hard. And there's a lot of times where it feels very easy to give up. Um, so you have to find within yourself the motivation to, to keep going. So it has to be something you're passionate about because otherwise you'll give up when it gets difficult. So fear of failure is, is definitely something um, that people have. But I think rather than fearing failure, people should actually um, embrace it. You know, it's everyone's going to fail at some point. And if you think if you're scared of failing, then when it comes, you're going to have a really negative approach to it. But it's, if you recognize that you're going to fail at some point um, and you think to yourself, OK, I know I'm going to fail, but what can I learn from it? Then you're going to have a much better experience. So I always try to learn a lot from myself. I know that I'm not perfect and there's so many things I can do better. So each time things don't work out, I try to think, well, what can I do better? How can I learn from this experience to make sure it doesn't happen again? Um, so yeah, trying to have a really positive attitude towards learning uh, and and failure is, is something that I've I've learned to have. So yeah, of course, there have been a lot of challenges. Um, also, the other thing is being so quite young, doing this work, quite often uh, people don't necessarily take you seriously. Uh, you know, people think you don't know what we're doing or... Just because you're young, you probably are going to not, it's not going to work or it's going to fail. Um, so I think, yeah, you definitely get judged on your age uh, when you're trying to do something yourself. Um, but I think over time, people, your record can speak for itself. And the more things you do, people will start to take it more seriously. Um, but certainly at the start of this journey, lots of people assumed that things wouldn't work. And of course, when people don't believe in you, it can kind of not for confidence. But I just understood that perhaps they don't understand or I could defy their expectations. So it was almost motivating for me to kind of prove people wrong. So yeah, a lot of challenges, uh, lots of different types of things, but ultimately if you have the right attitude um, and you work on something you're passionate about, then I think you can make your own luck and you know everything will, will work out. It won't be perfect. It won't be uh, no bumps in the road. There'll be lots of challenges, but as long as you know that's the case and you want to learn from them, then I think anyone can achieve what they want to. You said a very right thing, I think, about uh, the attitude towards your mistakes. I think when you change your perception of mistakes, it's not your mistakes anymore. It's your experience. And it's absolutely, it's normal not to be okay. You told me that you were interested in making a difference since your childhood. So what do you think it was thanks to your friends thanks to your family networking so i think for me um my journey in in social impact or making a difference whatever you want to call it really started when i was about 16 years old i actually went along to the a meeting of the uh, youth council in my area so this was like a, a body a group that met um you know once a month or something to talk about issues that matter to to people in local community young people specifically and when i was talking about these issues and thinking about it and discussing with other people i realized that there were so many different problems that people faced and i really wanted to do something to help others um and so from this then i used them as a springboard uh to go into the uk youth parliament uh where we talked about things more nationally and the more I uh, engaged with people and, and discussed these things, the more I realized that there were so many different uh, issues that people were facing, um, which was, of course, really unfair. Um, and so I guess it was really the idea of making an impact was something I got from my work in, in advocacy, which started when I was around 16. I guess I've always been quite interested in politics, um, not just because it's uh, you know interesting 
from like a, a spectator point of view, but also that politicians, if they do the right thing, can make a really big impact because they have the power to make laws and, and make decisions which affect people's lives. And we don't always see that those decisions are made to for the interests of, of average people at heart. Um, but I realized that politics has a potential to make a big impact. And so that's why I started going to this this youth council and then took that further in the advocacy work that I did. Um, so that then made me really aware and really passionate about different issues. And then I guess from there, that's why I then started the organization during the pandemic. And then one thing has really led to another. So yeah, I think it's advocacy and, and politics I've always found very interesting. Um, and then that's really conditioned the way I think about the world and, and issues and to continue to want to make a difference. So yeah, I would trace it back to that experience in, in my childhood. Have you ever had uh, your inspiration, I mean, role model for a template? Yeah, so actually I got asked this question the other day on a different podcast and I, I didn't really have an answer, but I thought about it. And my first memory of anything in politics was... Uh, the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2008. I remember I was at home and I was watching it on the TV. I didn't really understand what it was at the time because I was only seven years old. But, you know, I knew it must be something important. And of course, he was the first black man to be elected as president. And so his values, the way he made decisions was something that I found, um, you know, really, really inspirational. And of course, his story of as well being able to you know overcome various challenges and, and become president of the United States, which is one of the most important uh, positions in, in politics globally, I found his story really inspirational. And so uh, he is someone that I would definitely view as one of my role models. Um, so that's a political example. Um, but role models aside from politics, um, I guess it's a bit cheesy, but my, my parents, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from them. They aren't interested. They are, you know, they're not involved in politics or entrepreneurship or social impact or any of the things I do. But at least the way they conduct themselves and think about, you know, integrity and transparency, these values are, are really important to me. And of course, the reason I have those values or the reason I've learned them is because I've grown up around my parents and, and they educated me about those things. So, um, yeah, of course, the president and my parents are very different people, but I think there's still there's some overlaps there. And I've drawn a lot of inspiration from them in terms of the way that I conduct myself and the way I think about the world. Um, so, yeah, those are two kind of examples of, of role models that I would have. In our podcasts, we are talking a lot about the younger generation. So from your perspective, what do you think? What is bad and what is good in the current generation? Let's start with the good. I think people on average, of course, this is varies a lot across different young people, but young people do seem to be more passionate and more aware about the world around them. This is partly as a result of social media and, and it's easier to find out stuff, but People do seem to, you know, be more interested in the world around them and want to make a difference. Um, whether it's things like, you know, things like we've seen like BLM, for example, or around campaigns on climate change. Young people do seem to be more sensitive towards issues and wanting to to do something about that, which is good because older generations don't always see such importance in that. So that's positive. But I also mentioned how people are really aware of that because of social media. So social media has its benefits, but I also think that social media is one of the main problems amongst young people. I think uh, there's so many different ways in which that takes form, whether that's misinformation. Um, but I think one of the biggest issues is around sort of like um, body image and perceptions. Everyone sees, or even just life perceptions, right? If you look on it, if I was open Instagram now, I would see all the highlights of everyone's, all my friends and my, like, my followers' lives. 
which is nice. But if you look at that and you're stuck at home doing nothing, you think, oh, well, these people are on holiday. These people it's are partying. These yeah. people are doing amazing <laughs> things. And so, you know, I think it's easy to look at that and think, wow, everyone's lives is amazing and mine's not. But the truth is they're only posting the best things. And if you saw the bad things that are happening to them, then you think, oh, so they're just like me. Yeah, and maybe I'm not on holiday now and I'm just stuck at home. But they were until they posted their story that they were holiday. So I feel like social media can be quite toxic. I think particularly like our age, you know, we've had to grow up navigating like social media becoming popular. And then like we've had to deal with that in its early stage. People growing up now, social media is already so embedded that hopefully there are better ways in which people can learn to moderate and understand it. But we've we've grown up in a world where social media has become a big thing and we've had to deal with like the impact of that so um it's been an interesting time there's been lots of benefits but also lots of uh negatives that i mentioned so yeah i'd say social media is probably the most consequential thing both for good and for bad it's a very controversial thing because thanks to the social media you are able to uh network with people Mm -hmm. to connect with them but on the other hand as you said correctly that for example you may see the pictures of your friends and you think that for example your life is very boring but you never know what their life is in real in this particular moment while we are doing these stories i think you know with the younger generation now we are more um career oriented which is also a bit ambiguous because of course it's super cool that we are very motivated to earn some money to make our life and our children's life for the better. But uh, at the same time, when we are very career-oriented, we don't see maybe the value in creating a family, in creating uh, good relations. So yeah, it's ambiguous. And I think that it's really important to strive this balance. Yeah, I agree. And what you said about there being so many positives of, of social media, like networking, I've seen that. Like, for example, with my code organization, the volunteer organization, it wouldn't have been successful without social media, right? Like I encourage people to volunteer. I spread the word. I built partnerships through LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn, we can technically classify as social media. Um, And so, yeah, there's so many benefits and the world is so much more connected. You know, I wouldn't be able to travel the world and speak at the conferences and go to places that I do uh, without that because people view my profile and they ask me to come and they contact me and that wouldn't be possible for social media right so of course there are so many benefits could you tell me about your global purpose in life if i were to look back at my life when i you know when i pass away and think well what do i want to achieve i think it's probably about you know making an impact and that's can that can take many forms but if there's if i can help people and improve something if i can improve people's lives then that's something that i'm you know very passionate about doing the, I've been able to do that through some of the different work I've done, particularly during the pandemic. But also, I think it's really important to educate other young people about that. And so, although I do a lot of speaking at different conferences, like particularly in business and executives, one of the things I enjoy doing most is speaking to other young people, whether they're at school or university. I'm really encouraging them to do something impactful to support other people. Because if I can share my experiences and the insights from my work, and then just one person from one of the talks goes away and does something to support people in their community, then that means that I've, you know, indirectly helped communities and encouraged other people to have an impact. So whilst I love doing stuff for myself, I think it's also important to encourage other young people to do similar things. That's one of the important parts of my work. Um, and that's something that I think is also my purpose to make sure that other people can uh, help their communities and, and make the world a better place too, because one person alone can't do it all. So uh, it's about encouraging others too. 
now there will be a rubric short answers mm -hmm. no short questions short answers short questions to ask yeah what is the best advice you've ever received oh gosh that's a that's a very tough question the best advice i've ever received is to do what i think is in my best interest of course lots of people advise all the time to do different things but ultimately try and do what's best for you and that's what you'll find most satisfying now it's more complicated what's the worst advice you've ever received in your life well, it's actually like the opposite of the best mm -hmm. advice the worst advice i ever received is to like do very specific things like go to this university or take this job or do this because everyone else is doing it like for me i should always try to do something slightly different and what's in my interests rather than what people who don't understand my goals tell me to do and the last one if you could have banned one law that wouldn't be obligatory for everybody on the planet what would you need Again, a very big question. I think it's not necessarily a law that everyone would follow, but I think one of the biggest things that I find in the world is there's so much uh, inequality, and I would love everyone to be able to you know, get food and shelter. I mean, it's not a law that everyone follows, but if there was something I could change in the world, one click, I think it would be addressing poverty globally um, because there's so much uh, inequality and disadvantage in the world, so that's something I would love to tap Thank you so much, Rory, for such a meaningful talk. It was really thought-provoking. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs>